Hey everyone, Eric here. Just before we get to the show today, I want to let you know about the big changes here on our team. We've now got six editors in both Asia and Africa producing some great journalism every day on what the Chinese are doing throughout the developing world. No one provides this kind of daily coverage about the Global South from the Global South. And that's why governments, think tanks, and investors around the world read our newsletter every day and rely on our website. If you'd like to find out what they're reading and get a truly unique perspective on China and the world, subscribe today. Subscriptions are super affordable and you get 30 days free just to try it out. So go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witts University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on China-Africa relations through training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from sub-China, America Olander. And as always, I'm joined by CGSP's managing editor, Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And we're also joined by our francophone editor, Jeronima, on the line with us today. A very good afternoon. Bonjour, Jero. Bonjour. Good afternoon to you. Well, today we've got a two-part show. First, we're going to bring you highlights from our discussion with China's Consul General to New York, Huang Ping. And then we're going to bring you up to date on the controversy that erupted earlier this week from a riveting BBC Africa investigation called Racism for Sale that caused an uproar uh, online and throughout Africa and especially in Malawi. But let's start with the discussion we had with Huang Ping. What's interesting about him is that prior to his appointment to the consulate in New York, he was China's ambassador to Zimbabwe. So there's a very interesting Africa connection there for us. And so when the opportunity presented itself for us to speak with him, we thought, hey, this would be a great opportunity because honestly, as you know, it's super difficult these days to get Chinese stakeholders to come on the show. And we hear the same thing with other people in the media, particularly the Western media, that their calls just don't go answered anymore from professors, from scholars, from analysts, from lots of different folks in China who just now today don't feel comfortable speaking in the media. It's not at all like it used to be in the old days, especially with government officials. Kobus, you and I remember you know, early on in this show, it wasn't that difficult to get scholars and government officials, but today, really, that is, uh, that's not the case anymore. So it's a really rare opportunity, and we thought that we what we'd like to do is really give him the chance to speak, because the fact is, we don't really hear from Chinese officials in these kinds of unfiltered environments very often. I'm not talking about the propaganda stuff and the statements from the foreign ministry people. That's something totally different. We hear that all the time. Also, we didn't want to do the kind of interview that Margaret Brennan from CBS's Face the Nation did with China's ambassador to the U.S., Qin Gang where she literally interrupted him 23 times in a nine-minute interview. And you just couldn't hear what he had to say. So we actually wanted to let him kind of say his points. And we think it's important that whether you agree or disagree with the Chinese government, and there are strong emotions on all sides, that you at least have to know what they have to say and where they're coming from. 
Kobus, Giraud, I want to get your takes on this. I think when we talk about the knowledge deficits in places like Africa about the Chinese, I think a big part of the problem is that we just don't hear enough from Chinese officials in these kinds of more casual, unscripted environments. Kobus, let's get your take first. Yeah, I completely agree. One of the problems also for, for Africa particularly is that unlike Western countries where where the kind of battle lines are very, very starkly set up, you know, kind of, and therefore, you, you know, kind of like you have these kind of talking points and then people kind of move very kind of rapidly into into starting to starting the fight um you know as, as we see you know kind of frequently in the u.s or in australia i think in africa you know kind of there, there's a, a more of a desire to hear actually what chinese diplomats want to say and how they how they articulate their points you know kind of because i think for many for many african publics they're still busy making up their minds you know so, so in that sense like just giving people a chance to speak and to actually articulate things the way they would like to articulate them is a is a useful thing to do, I think. Giro, what do you think? For me, it's just quite simple. If you want to contradict someone, you have at least to know what he has to say. You have to hear him speak. But when you don't let him speak, when you don't let him express his point of view, even though you don't agree with it, it's just not a way to communicate. And somehow we can understand a certain extent why Chinese would not want to speak to media directly. And I remember one comment I've read somewhere when they were saying that the Chinese official, they don't want to be called, they don't want to be taken aside or take uh, being like trapped during an interview. So that's why they want somehow, they want to control the environment because we also know how sometimes media heads tends to spin certain interviews. So that's why we may understand why they're not really willing to talk. But at the same time, we'd like to hear it from them more and especially from the African. And when you look at African, from an African perspective on the media, Africans, they don't tend to to be to be confrontational they're going to let you speak even though they don't agree with you they're going to let you speak and that's why it's in, in different issues in, in various issues that we have on the continent with chinese officials chinese government and companies when they don't speak they just leave a void that get that get filled by different narrative coming uh, from different sides and at the end we just don't know what they want and what they really think about the situation on the ground and that's really very unfortunate it's a very good point that they are very much to blame for a lot of the misunderstanding, for their resistance and reluctance to speak and engage with the media. So uh, that's an excellent point, Joel. Listen, just before we get started, I want to make two very important notes. In our discussion with Ambassador Huang, uh, there were no restrictions on the questions we could ask. We could ask anything we wanted, and we did not have to submit any of our questions in advance. So the conversation was basically us showing up and saying, here's what we want to talk about, and, and that was it. So uh, we could basically talk about anything. And given that he's the consul general in New York, uh, we thought that it would make sense to start our conversation with his take on the current state of U.S.-China relations, given that's such a hot topic today. And you'll hear, and it's very interesting, that he puts all of the burden for the deteriorating ties between the two countries squarely on the shoulders of the Americans. China-U.S. relations is now in, in the critical moment. When we look back, we see when President Nixon visited China 50 years ago and started the re-engagement and uh, paved the way for the two countries to normalize their relationship, we could see how this relationship have produced a tangible results to benefit the people and the world. This is undeniable. 
But now I think Washington has a huge uh, misperception of China's development. Uh, that's the major reason why uh, this relationship is now deteriorating. They see China as a challenger. They see China as the uh, most serious strategic kind of uh, competitor or even enemy. China has been seen as a threat. We are focusing our energy intention to further develop our country, to provide the people with a better life. We still have a long way to go. So for us, we want to cooperate with the U.S. rather than, you know, to challenge the U.S. We want to be a partner, not a threat to the U.S. China does not have the intention or even have this capability to do that. So this is a very uh, misunderstanding. This is a, quite a misunderstanding about China. There are differences between China and the U.S. for sure. We are such a different country from uh, history, from uh, uh, you know culture, uh, from the development of the past, and uh, you know, always we're different. But I think we can manage those different. In the past 50 years, we've been doing very well. We manage all those different. So I would like to see the U.S. you know to change this idea. Don't see China as a, uh, as a threat, but rather as a partner. Kobus, this is an interesting pattern that you'll hear from Chinese officials on a regular basis. In fact, just last weekend, China's defense minister, Wei Fenghe, he told attendees at the Shangri-La Forum in Singapore, and when he was asked about Sino-Indian border tensions on the, what's some, on the region that's called the line of actual control, he said, none of the responsibility for the violence is China's. And here's what his quote was. He says, the merits of the China-India border conflicts are very clear, and the responsibility does not lie with China. So this seems to be a very common rhetorical tactic that's often used where China is the victim and others are the aggressors. What did you think of his remarks? Yes, I think you definitely see that see that um, trend, but I think you probably also kind of see it on the other side, you know, because because when one speaks to American stakeholders, there's also you know kind of a, a, a strong kind of narrative that that you know that a lot of the a lot of what they see as problems are come from the Chinese side that they're unprovoked that you know etc cetera, etc cetera. you know so 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 there is I think that that is a, a kind of a general trope in in international relations you know people don't tend to actually take on a lot of responsibility for conflict on themselves. And, you know, the, I think the challenge is then to move on to, to something that's a little bit more fruitful, a little bit more even-handed. Yeah, I mean, that's not easy to do these days with both sides, as you said, kind of hurling insults and blame at the other. Now, we're going to stay with the U.S.-China or the China-West divide for a little bit. There's been a lot of talk in capitals like Washington, Canberra, Brussels, London, and other Western states that China wants to use its newfound power, relatively new for the, you know, in historical terms, to change the international order more to its favor. You hear American and European officials often say that they are defending what they call a rules-based order. That's what they keep saying over and over again. Now, that implies that the Chinese don't want a rules-based order, which a lot of experts actually would disagree with, that China is more of an evolutionary power than a revolutionary power. But there's no doubt that they don't like the current U.S.-European-led system. 
First of all, China is a peace-loving country. Throughout its history, China has never occupied one inch of any other uh, foreign land. You could see that even when we are a very powerful country, even when we have a navy which goes all the way down to reach the Eastern African, Zheng He 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 had seven voyages, you know, and, but we never colonized any country, and we built a wall to define our country. So that's for defense, and also. Uh, if you look at uh, what happened, I mean, uh, since the founding of the People's Republic, we never uh, started a war uh, with anybody. And in the meantime, China is a top contributor of military peacekeepers uh, among the P5 and the second largest contributor of UN peacekeeping funds. Also, China has become a pillar I mean, uh, safeguarding international order. We unswervingly defend the international system, but with the UN at its core and safeguarded the basic norms governing international relations based on the purpose and the principles of the UN Charter. We uh, support the international system, but it must be based on the UN Charter. Uh, we don't agree with, uh, you know, the so-called the, the system, but uh, based on the house rules of some countries. That's a difference. So to see China is a game changer or challenge the international order, it's not right. Okay, so first, this whole line, and you hear this a lot, that China has never invaded another country, China's never occupied another country. I will tell you that for 1,050 years here in Vietnam, people would strongly disagree with that assessment. In the 1978 Sino-Vietnamese border war, again, up for dispute. So that uh, that statement that Chinese officials often put forward here in Southeast Asia gets very, very complicated. Also, the dispute over the South China Sea makes it, again, really subject to a lot of discussion. But let's not get bogged down in that. Giraud, the Chinese have benefited enormously I mean, just unimaginably from the U.S.-led post-war economic order, but they don't like it anymore. And they expressly want to dilute U.S. and European power. You heard him say it, some countries by their rules. And while there's a lot of resistance in the West against what the Chinese want to do, there's not as much in places like Africa and the global South, in part because that rules-based order that the Americans are so fond of protecting hasn't always served people in poorer countries very well. Yes, that's true. And especially when you look at the history between African and those uh, Western countries, when you talk about rule-based order, and we have to keep in mind that there is, we have that we see, we see, we are seeing a lot and lots uh, in Africa now how people are becoming more critical and they criticize a lot the rule-based order based on quote-unquote American orders where we see a certain double standard on different issues. We saw that in war in Afghanistan, in Iraq and everything. Those kind of situations when they erupt and when you have China coming and say we really want a rule-based order system based on UN principle, you're going to have a lot of sympathetic ears in Africa saying yeah that's what we want. We want, we, we want that double standard to stop. We want that hypocrisy to stop to say at one point at, at, at what point uh, we implement these rules, at what point we don't implement this. We really want something that's standard, that's really 
um, unequivocally fair to any countries. But when we, f when, when we have that feeling that a certain group of country can impose the rules, they can ban the rules of the United Nations, and of course, when China's going to come and say, you know, when they, the way they've been, they've been doing that with African leaders and with African uh, stakeholders, when they've been telling them, you know, we want a fair, a fair international system where sovereignty is respected, where no country is imposing its view on other countries, of course, those African countries with their story, with their colonial story with the, with the Western country, they will definitely be sympathetic and will be, yeah, the, what China is doing makes sense to us. We kind of reflect what they're saying to us. So that's why it's really, really important that rules-based order, somehow, when people say that it needs to change, they say, yeah, it needs to be more fair and more equal to, any, to every country, which realistically is difficult to achieve. Kobus, this is an issue you think about a lot. Give us your take. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, as you say in the first place, China is a is a country that that values stability, and you know, so 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 this kind of you know unified international order, you know, like China China benefited a lot from it. But but as as Giroud was was pointing out, that there's the the fact that there are a set of rules, and the fact that these rules are in theory you know, the same for everyone doesn't mean that everyone is sitting in the same relationship in relation to those to, to that system. You know, so for example, like if you think about something that's so so basic as as, as the rules for that, that countries can impose visa restrictions. Like, sure, I mean any country has the freedom to impose visa restrictions, many African countries do. But the reality is still that visa visa restrictions are used overwhelmingly to keep People, global South people in the global South or away from the global North, and they they much much less kind of impacting on the lives of global North, you know, kind of travelers. So, for example, I know people from the global North who travel a lot and who's who've applied for visas maybe five six times in their lives, and I know Africans who who have spent thousands and thousands of dollars on visas through the years, and some of them, you know, kind of taking so long to be processed that they that they kind of aren't able to go on the trip. So those kind of very basic differences are, are very clear to Africans, but they're not as clear, I think, to the global north. And 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 they and they tend to be they tend to be kind of folded in, you know, kind of these these kind of structural, you know, kind of power imbalances tend to get kind of folded into the this this discussion about a rules based order in a way that's never questioned, and that therefore like global south, you know, um, concerns are never addressed. Well, let me just push back on both of you. I get what you're both saying, that there's frustrations with the post-war U.S.-led international order. But I think the Americans would turn around and say, do you want to live in a system where it is basically authoritarian, lack of transparency? Obviously, China does not have a strong environmental record, not to suggest that the United States and Europe has a good environmental record, but environmental issues are still to this day, it's a problem in China. Secondly, the lack of civil society. I mean, all of the weak attributes and the critics, what they point out, of the weaknesses in Chinese society, that's something that could be exported internationally or breaking down what what little international system we have. Well, those are only two options. One sees that one sees that frequently. You know, kind of is, is you know kind of um, this kind of like after me the deluge kind of like you know kind of kind of logic coming from Western countries that that we're the best you have. You know, kind of there's no way to improve anything. Like it's only it's only the, this kind of like current Western system is the best thing we'll ever have. And you know, kind of and and the only option is other option is kind of is authoritarianism. You know. 
know, being exported. I don't think that's necessarily fair, you know, because because African countries have been pushing for many, many decades against against these kind of institutionalized imbalances. Yes, I you know, I I can see the danger of 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 the deterioration of that system, but to, to pretend that that system is somehow the best thing we can possibly imagine in the world, you know, is also not not true, I think. Giraud, do you have a response to the critics, or should we move on? No, I have a, I have a response to the critic, of course. Um, it's it's termed from the perspective under which the question and the criticism is uh, is asked. Because from an African perspective, when your needs are more oriented to development, to political stability, to security, to nation, to nation building, to state building, of course, this critics is, doesn't make don't make sense anymore in a certain way because for them, it's like yeah, yeah, human rights, environment, and everything. But at the same time, I don't have a state, I don't have a stable system, I don't have a country, I don't have this and that. That really doesn't speak to me. You see, so when those critics are I raised toward Africans to speak about, you know, Chinese system and what may happen, they're gonna just, you're just going to have an answer by saying, yeah, but in the meantime, I'm going to have a stable country. I'm going to have a stable, I'm gonna have a, uh, a stable political system. I'm going to have development. I'm going to have this. So it depends on the perspective and the needs of the country. In the global south, especially in Africa, when the needs are more related to state building, development, and political stability, I can tell you those criticisms, they don't make much of a difference to people. Because now people are start seeing like, yeah, China is bringing some, some way, it's in certain way, development to our countries. We're going to worry about the human and the, uh, individual rights later, later on. But for now, we have this as a problem, not, 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 those, not really those big human rights problems now. Oh, that is a perfect transition, Jeho, to our next topic on the very, very sensitive issue of human rights. This is, of course, one of the most contentious points between China and the West. But before we get into what Ambassador Huang had to say on human rights, let me just lay out in very broad strokes some of the key differences between the two sides that I think might help you understand how to better frame his comments, especially for those of you who may be new to this topic. So again, this is way oversimplified, but I think it'll again help inform some of the things that you're going to hear from him. So generally speaking, generally speaking, and I'm sure there are scholars out there who are going to poke holes in this and send me <laughs> nasty emails that I'm oversimplifying it, but the Western concept of rights is that they are inalienable so that nobody can take them away. They are universal. That means Everyone, no matter what country, no matter where you live, you have the same rights. Uh, they are all-encompassing. That is, they include civil, political, social, economic, sexuality, and they're all equally important, okay? So that is basically a, a, the Western concept of it, as enshrined in many of the UN declarations on human rights, which, of course, were written by Westerners. Now, the Chinese concept of human rights is very, very different. And it's interesting because, you know, you alluded to some of the key notes here. So this will sound very familiar to you. Rather than being universal, they believe that each country should be able to set the standards for their people's human rights. So that is not universal. They are not equal. That is, they believe that social and economic rights take precedent over civil and political rights. And Jero, that's the point that you were speaking to, that if you don't have a roof over your head, you don't have security, you don't have food in your belly, then the right to gather for freedom of religion or association or press or all these other rights really don't matter. That's the approach that what you were saying and also what we hear from the Chinese. So with that in mind, let's take a listen to Ambassador Huang on the question of human rights. 
So you mentioned the, the human rights. And I think uh, ensuring the human rights for all are the common pursuit of human society. In China, uh, from the day one, as I mentioned, the, the CPC identified as its founding mission the pursuit of the happiness for the Chinese people and the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. And it has been doing this uh, in the past, uh, you know, 100 years. Uh, you got to know that China has included in its constitution of human rights protection as a very important uh, principle. We believe there is neither one size fits all model for the protection of human rights, nor the absolutely authoritative path for the development of human rights in the world. We also believe human rights has a historical, specific, and a practical context. With different countries, you know, different conditions, histories, cultures, social systems, and the levels of economic and the social development. Countries should and can only explore suitable paths of human rights development in light of uh, national realities and the uh, people's needs. For a developing country like China, the rights to subsistence and the development are the primary human rights. And we have been doing very well. We've been doing very well. Over the past 40 years, as you know, we managed to get more than 850 million people uh, out of poverty. That's amazing achievement. And throughout the fight against the COVID-19, uh, we put people and the human lives first. I think we've been doing also very well. And in the meantime, we are strengthening our exchanges and the cooperations with international community. We actively conducting human rights dialogue and uh, cooperation with all the other countries to uh, expand the common understanding to reduce differences, promote mutual learning, seek progress together, and jointly advance the international human rights course for the greater uh, benefit of the people across the world. Now, he makes it sound much more collaborative than it really is. This is, again, a point of major, major contention and confrontation between China and many countries outside of China, in the West particularly. But so, again, our objective here today was not to go after him point by point by point, but again, just so that you could hear some of the key things and then get Kobus's and Jiro's take on them. But you heard some of the key themes in his remarks that I laid out. The rights to subsistence and development take precedent over, say, freedom of speech and religion, and even those rights that are specifically mentioned in the Chinese constitution. It's amazing. It's right there in print. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, even though in China, as we know, those are not rights that are universally available. And again, they are subject to the whims of the Communist Party. But once again, in their view, not all rights are equal. And that's really the key takeaway here. And the human rights issue also in the Chinese perspective is tightly bound with the tensions with the U.S. Now, this is nothing new. I remember, and I'm going to date myself here, Kobus, I remember these discussions all the way back to the late 80s and early 90s after the massacre on June 4th. So today, 
China's response, as you'll hear from the ambassador, is way more forceful than it was back then. You've got to feed people first, keep them warm, allow them to send their kids to school. Uh, those are the basic things. So we believe, or I believe, human rights are not empty slogans. That's a real. So I, I, I think for the developing country, the fundamental, I mean, human rights is to development, provide them with a good life. I think that's the most important thing. When the U.S. is accusing China's genocide in Xinjiang something, they should know that uh, the Indians in the, uh, in the U.S., they have experienced the bloody massacres. You know, their population was reduced uh, from 5 million in like 14 some years, you know, to 250,000 at the beginning of the last century. So that's the genocide. And when you see racial discrimination, you look at the George Floyd, he couldn't breathe, and you see this anti-Asian hate crime spiking, uh, like, you know, 339% around the US. And when, when you see the gun uh, violence, the shooting, uh, it was terrible. In, uh, recently in, the, in Buffalo and in Uvidi, uh, I, I just, you know, checked uh, that uh, by May this year, the U.S. has already experienced uh, at least uh, more than 200 mass shootings, causing 18,000 deaths. It's a terrible thing what's happening in the United States, but the same way that the Chinese government hates it when the United States comments on human rights violations that do occur in China. The Chinese say that's a, that's the internal affairs of China, and the United States has no business to comment on that. But when you, when, when you and other, and Zhao Lijian and other, and other representatives are commenting on the violence in the United States, isn't that an internal affairs of the United States and really an issue that is beyond the scope of, of international diplomacy? Yeah, we can talk about this. As say, China has been actively you know, engaging the international world to talk about those human rights issues. We can talk, but uh, you can't just put your fingers by using all those untrue, the lies, untrue things, you know, to accuse, to attack the other country. No human rights in any country are perfect. There's always room for all the countries to improve. So you've got to do those things, you know, in your country first, before you are there, standing there as a preacher, as a lecturer, or, you know, looks like uh, you are perfect. You are teaching people how to uh, do the human rights right, human rights protection. But in the meantime, so bad, you have a so bad record there. So we don't believe that the U.S. is standing on this moral ground to accuse anybody else. Okay, Giraud, there you heard a lot packed into those comments. <laughs> I mean, I mean, he said a lot of the things that you said. I think it's duplicitous on the part of the Chinese government, and they do this all the time, to talk about we don't interfere in the internal affairs of another country. If that's the case, no matter what the U.S. does, they, I mean, they should live by their principles and not talk about the, the domestic internal affairs of the United States. You heard my frustration there in, his, in, in commenting on that. That aside, uh, you heard the ranking of the rights, and that echoed a lot of what you were going to say. What's your reaction to that exchange we had? 
Yes, for me, it's more of um, a philosophical differences from society, from one country to another country, to for civilization in a certain way. Because when you look at, uh, for example, from an African perspective, where community is the center point, not the human individuals, you'll you, you understand that what is saying in terms of collective rights, human rights, in terms of social development and everything, it goes a lot to what African scholars and uh, even now academics and uh, politics are, are speaking about this about this African model where we put the community at the center, where we talk about development and everything. So in that perspective, in that regard, of course, what he's saying has a much as a lot of echoes to what he's saying. That's why you we, we have now more and more this narrative building up where we say it's time for Africa to build its own political system. This is where also China is coming to say, hey, you guys, you have your own story, you have your, your, your own history, your own past, your own evolution, you have the right to build your own political system. And that's true. But in the same time, as I was talking about the hip hypocrisy of it, is the fact that when China is criticizing the U.S., of course, they're going to say they're reacting to what the U.S. is telling them. And where people are feeling a bit um, frustrated by what the U.S. is doing is like what, just like the ambassador said, by the fact that you cannot be giving people lesson on things like human rights and democracy at the same time, and the same time doing business with your bad guys, you know, when you, when you do business with Saudi Arabia, or you do business with Egypt, and you go another country, say, no, we're not, we're not, we, we won't be doing business with 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 um, with Venezuela or with another African country because they're a dictatorship country. It doesn't make sense. You lose your stance, you lose your position to come and start quote unquote lecture people by saying you should be doing that. For you to lecture me, for you for your lecture and for your criticism to have a certain legitimacy, you have somehow to live by the standard that you are setting to yourself. When you don't live by that, when you don't your foreign policy doesn't abide by that, it becomes really difficult for you to come and say, you know, you have to follow this. And that's where China, when China is reacting, it echoes a lot to many African countries to what uh, African leaders and African scholars are now raising about the in, with, with, with the original political system that African country needs to build and in, in, on the, in the international system. Yeah, Kobus, you and I had a conversation earlier this week, which I thought was very pertinent to this, this discussion we're having now, which is that Joe Biden, the president of the United States, is now preparing to go to Saudi Arabia next month. Yes, for example. And then also Wendy Sherman, the number two State Department official. She was just out here in Vietnam. Didn't say a word about human rights here in Vietnam. Biden's he says he's going to talk about human rights with the with the crown prince. Who believes that for a second? I don't, you know, I mean they're going to talk about oil and they're going to talk about the pressure of the fact that Biden's approval rating is in the toilet below Trump's was at this time in his presidency and he needs to gas to get him out of that. Uh, but so countries that matter to the United States and Europe don't get the lectures. Countries that don't matter to the United States and Europe get all the lectures in the world. And that is the thing that I think what Giraud is saying, African governments and in Global South governments find it insidious. Yeah, and in, in, in that in that respect, I, I kind of you know like I mean this is not a popular a popular opinion I think on either side, but like in that respect, there's a little bit of a similarity between China and the United States for me. Not only the United States, you know, kind of Western countries in in the sense that on both sides, you know, there there is an attempt to kind of to to limit the 
to limit the kind of like responsibility for human for human rights protection that that is ascribed to the state or you know to to limit the the, the way that one can kind of think of the state as the author of human rights abuses for example right so for example on on the chinese side there is this you know this 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 focus on development, focus on on, on socioeconomic rights, which is which is a, very popular in, in Africa, as we've discussed it in in the past, um, and then with it, you know, kind of the, this kind of assumption that that you know for in in for development, it is important to 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 have this kind of unified unified population where where kind of outlying speech or outlying identities, like, for example, LGBT identities need to be sacrificed in order for a collective development, you know, kind of process. On the on the Western side, you have the, the kind of flip side of this, where where kind of collective failures of this of of the state caring for people, like for example, the the amount the number of people who died of COVID in the United States, can't be ascribed uh, can't be described as a human rights failure, human rights kind of abuse by the state, because it's been kind of already pre reframed as you know, a healthcare failure or administrative failure or a cultural failure, you know, whatever. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's in, in, in US, mainstream US discourse, it's very difficult to hook the, the COVID death rate to the, you know, to make it the fault of the state. And in both cases, you have the situation where, where it's like, well, you know, we can't, that, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy to, to ascribe X to the state, you know, kind of like that, that's clearly not a, a human rights abuse in our particular system, you know. So, so, this, so from an African perspective where, <laughs> where societies fail on both counts frequently, you know, kind of where they fail both on, in terms of individual rights like speech and in, in terms of socioeconomic rights like water provision, for example, it's just very interesting to kind of see this in action, you know, um, with the, the the kind of flexibility of rights, you know, kind of like as it as it moves from one part of the conversation to the other around the world. Yeah, that's not part of the discourse. Yeah, discussion of human rights in the United States, whether it's prison overcrowding, homelessness, healthcare, Guantanamo Bay, whether it's a caste system for African Americans, the most people imprisoned of any country in the world, those are all in other countries would be identified as human rights issues, police brutality. Let's go down the list of things, but that's never classified, as you pointed out, as a human rights issue in the U.S. vernacular. So I think that may also be part of the frustration that people looking at the United States from the outside in go, well, wait a minute, you've got a whole lot of problems, but yet the State Department every year issues a damning report of human rights in every other country, (laughs) but yet there's no report about human rights in the United States because it's a very contentious issue. And as you pointed out, Cobus, it is is not part of the dialogue. But listen, we don't want to only focus on the negatives. And I really tried to make sure that towards the end of our discussion that Cobus and I had with Ambassador Huang, that we said, okay, let's try and see if there's any small glimmer ray of sunshine that can creep through the tensions that China's having, not just with the United States, but tensions with many of its neighbors and other countries. But let's, again, for the purposes of our discussion, the U.S. kind of came up. Earlier this week, Cobus, and you you wrote about this, there was really something I haven't seen in a long time, if ever, where in Sri Lanka, in the capital, Colombo, we got a rare sighting of a U.S. and Chinese ambassadors actually being civil with one another. U.S. Ambassador Julie Chung and Chinese Ambassador Qi Hong met on Monday at the Chinese Embassy in Colombo to talk about how they can work together to help Sri Lanka out 
of its current financial crisis. I mean, listen, this is super rare. Genuinely, I can't. Cobus, can you think of a time where you saw a picture like the one where you saw the two ambassadors shaking hands and smiling, and it was all about collaborating together to kind of help a third party with no apparent agenda? I mean, I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, not in years have we seen it, yeah. Not in years. I, I I can't even think of it. With that in mind... We wanted to get Ambassador Swang take on what he thinks can actually be done in the current environment, practical solutions of where the two countries can work together. And this potentially could have a big impact in Global South countries because that would be the venue where it might happen. And even though both sides really, really don't like each other, and I think that is a very mild way of putting it, there's a lot of distrust there still may be some areas where they can work together. There are so many things we can do together in terms of addressing the issues of climate change and uh, fighting those terrorism, I said, and uh, on many other uh, issues of preventing the, or fighting this pandemic right now, or we cooperate to drive the economic recovery. And so many things we can do together. So, I mean, it's, it's, the inten- uh, it's the folks, if you only see the differences, then you can't do anything. But if you shift your attention to the cooperation, in the meantime, you manage your differences. The differences are always there, but you focus on the cooperation, then you can see the common grounds and uh, we can cooperate. Joe, what do you think? Can they cooperate? Of course they can cooperate. I do believe they can cooperate. And for me, when I say when in that narrative, US versus China, always I'm always laughing because when I see how some um, what some American businessmen do business in China, it proves you that the private sector can still cooperate. But the politi- when the politics comes into play, it becomes quite difficult. It becomes like strategic interest and everything. But I do believe, especially in the global south, yes, there is a lot of range of cooperation that's possible between China and the US in Africa. And in the global south in general, those countries need more of the beds, best of both sides than having just one part of the bed on, 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 on one of the side. That's the way to do that. And those countries should be able to impose that cooperation in those trilateral cooperation for the benefits. Yeah, there is, a, there is a way for, there is a lot of room for cooperation between those countries. Okay, so keep, keep your eyes on Sri Lanka and what these two ambassadors are doing. That may be the place where this starts. If there's a green shoot, it's happening in Sri Lanka. Quickly, before we wrap up this section of the show, we also wanted to take advantage of the fact that Ambassador Huang was the ambassador to Zimbabwe, and we wanted him to reflect a little bit on his time in Harare and share some of that experience. So let's take a listen to what he said about his time looking back as ambassador in Zimbabwe. My experience in Zimbabwe, I, you know, I only had three years there, but those uh, three years were quite, uh, quite unique. I witnessed uh, lots of uh, historical moments, like the uh, two state visits. President Xi went to visit Zimbabwe and uh, Zimbabwe's president also have a, had a state visit to China, and uh, I participated in two FOCAC meetings, one in Johannesburg in 2015, one in Beijing in 2018, and uh, I witnessed uh, the uh, inauguration of uh, Kariba South Power Plant. Uh, that was, you know, 
China was helping them to do that. I also witnessed the uh, inauguration of uh, the expansion and upgrading of Victoria Falls. Also, I attended their groundbreaking ceremony for the Halari Airport. Uh, Halari Airport is upgrading and expansion. Uh, before I leave, I know China donated a parliament uh, for Zimbabwe. It, it's a beautiful one. I saw the design. I saw the picture on the map. It's so beautiful. And so those were the things, you know, we've been doing there. We're doing the real, real things uh, to help these countries to develop its economy so people can benefit from there. Okay, Kobus. What did you think of the whole conversation? That was most of what we spoke with him about. What did you What did you think? What's your reflections on our on our chat with Ambassador Huang? It's always fascinating to speak with with um, high level Chinese diplomats. It's always a, a you know a, a rare opportunity. Um, it also is an opportunity that comes always with constraints. Um, you know, that's you know they they're not in uh, in a very freewheeling position themselves professionally. You know, kind of they they have limits about what they can discuss. Um, so it is it is always really interesting to hear how how things get articulated. Um, and I you know kind of I was really glad for the for the opportunity. Um, I think in in, in some cases. Um, you know, I, I wish I wish there was a way of kind of, of of moving towards more kind of concrete discussions. Um, you know, but but again, this is you know this is not the nature of speaking with diplomats. I was about to say that is this case with all diplomats that they're bound exactly, by, and it's exactly. also by the way when I was working at CNBC, it was the same thing of working with CEOs. I hated interviewing CEOs because they have so many legal constraints on what they can say and what they can't say that they're really not that interesting to speak with. And I find ambassadors are equally difficult to interview because, again, they're bound by, by these guardrails. If they say something out of line, if they say something that could affect policy, you don't get the most interesting discussions. The, the one thing, sorry about sorry to interrupt. The, the, the one, the one thing I would add is that I think what's what's one of the really important things about speaking with with Chinese diplomats is that it makes clear and it makes it makes real that what that that the the that there are, as Giraud said, there are very fundamental kind of differences, philosophical differences between these two. It's not, it's, you know, kind of it makes it, it makes it harder to just assume that one side is wrong, the other side is right, you know? Like when, when you realize that, that when you look at the, 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 the differences between Chinese position and Western positions, and you realize there are sense in both of those positions and that they are they are kind of stacked against each other in, in in particular ways for particular reasons on both sides and it's not just a situation that one that one side is a historical monster and the other one is, is fighting for justice you know it's um both of them are complicated actors um you know with with a lot of contradictions and and and, and therefore it's and and that's that's i think it's a more healthy place to move from you know kind of the, rather than you you know, kind of like, oh, you're historically wrong, and we and we're trying to to kind of to to save the world from you. You know, kind of that's not a healthy position to start from. Yeah, I'm glad again for the opportunity, as Kobus mentioned, to have the chance to speak with Chinese officials. It doesn't happen very often. I hope it happens more. I hope we can have more of these conversations. Every time we speak with a senior Chinese official, 
I always think, is this going to be the last time that they're not going to like something that we say? And that's the end of it. <laughs> I'm hoping to receive some in my French podcast. Yes, well, hopefully we'll get some of them into your French podcast. So, okay, let's quickly leave it there. We want to thank Ambassador Huang and his team for making the interview possible. Again, it's something that for us is very special because it doesn't happen very often. And we hope that it'll happen more because we think that it's really important to be able to hear these ideas laid out in a much more conversational way. And the point here was not to fact check every single point. We would do the same if we spoke with the ambassador from Kenya or the ambassador from, from France or any other country. We really want to hear what people have to say. And, and we'll leave it up to you to decide whether or not you think it's legitimate or credible. Let's quickly move on to our next section because I'm under pressure here to make sure that our show does not cross an hour. This week, the other top story of the week was an amazing documentary that came out of BBC Africa. It's called Racism for Sale. If you have not been following what's been going on on Twitter, let me just quickly play you the trailer and it'll kind of set the tone. And I think you'll understand why it really just tore up Twitter. Someone, somewhere, said to a group of happy African kids... Repeat after me. Africa Eye investigates an online industry of humiliation. Where was this filmed? Who did it? And why? So that was Runako Selina, and her reporting partner on this was Henry Mango, both from BBC. The Chinese portion of the trailer was the Chinese producer of these videos, and they're called blessing videos, greeting videos, warrior videos. And basically what they are are these videos where people online in China place an order for between $15 and $30 dollars. And they either have signs that the kids hold up or the kids will say things, or it's not only children, it's also adults as well. Sometimes they're sexual in nature, sometimes they are offensive in nature. In the case of this trailer and what they were investigating in Malawi, they had the kids say, I am a black monster and my IQ is low. And there are allegations in the documentary that the Chinese producer of these videos in Malawi abused the children. It is offensive to the highest order, and it caused an immediate backlash in Malawi. On Monday, uh, right after the release of the documentary, Foreign Minister Nancy Tembo held a press conference, and she did not hold back what she had to say. She said, and let me quote here, we are feeling disgusted, disrespected, and deeply pained. And her feelings were, were, were felt right across uh, African Twitter. They were felt in a number of different civil society groups. The outrage was far and wide. Interestingly enough, coincidentally, it uh, was at the same time that uh, China's top diplomat for sub-Saharan Africa, Wu Peng, is on a seven-nation tour. And just again, by coincidence, he was in Malawi today, and he met with Nancy Tembo on Thursday, and they said they had a nice, happy picture of them shaking hands and saying, you know, we're working together to, to crack down on racism. And here's what Wu Peng tweeted out. He said, China has been cracking down on those unlawful online acts in the past years. We'll continue to crack down on such racial discrimination videos in the future. To be fair here, 
The facts do not support that statement. What we have seen from the reporting from the South China Morning Post and others is that the, the demand for these videos actually has gone up this year a lot. There is no evidence that the Chinese government is actually cracking down on this. Okay, let's quickly get your takes on this. Jero, I know you have a lot to say, but first let's get uh, Kobus. Yeah, these videos are gross AF. This is really terrible. It's like, you know, it's, it's yeah, it, it, it just, it's, it's one of those things where it just kind of makes you like, despair for humanity. <laughs> you know, you're like, what, what are we busy with? <laughs> well, there's a deep history that we've been yeah. writing about in our yeah. coverage. There's a context. It's, it's been going on for videos. a while. This isn't new. Yeah. And, you know, kind of, an, and, and, and it seems to have gotten a, you know, kind of a, a spike in popularity because of, because everyone was locked down in China, you know, and kind of desperate for, for some kind of, you know, um, both communication in the form of a shout out, but then also also just entertainment. Let's push a little bit deeper here. There's a deeper historical context here of Africans and black people being objectified for the entertainment of others, whether it was the Belgians who brought Congolese to Brussels to put them in a zoo or in in Paris at the Jardin d'Acclimatation, you know, in the, in the 16th arrondissement, they brought Africans there and people would come by and gape at them. And it has this deep historical anchor into that type of exploitation. Yeah, it's really disgusting. It's just disgusting, disgusting to the core at the point that you just don't, you cannot let it slide. And so doing that with, to children, it's just like, how can you do that? Why would you take children and make them do that? And when you when you follow the the, the, the BBC, uh, the coverage, you're going to see that the Chinese still living there, still living in that village. And uh, God knows how many of those videos he, he made after that. But that's something that just speaks a lot and I want to say, although it speaks a lot to many, to 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 the perspective of certain Chinese to Africa, it cannot be summarized what all Chinese think of Africa, and that's sometimes what we need to take out of this to to be careful to tread carefully in a way that that video can also cannot also serve the purpose of like labeling the whole Chinese community in Africa. That's not going to help anybody. So we're going to invite Renako Selina to come on the show. We've decided to wait a little bit in previous instances of these types of controversies, we've had the guests come on right at the height of the controversy. And what we'd like to do this time is kind of get a little bit of perspective and let her come on after two or three weeks. Let's kind of let the the reactions marinate a little bit so we have a deeper understanding of the impact that this has had. Clearly, the work that Renako and Henry has done is meaningful. It's important. It's raised awareness on, again, this revolting trade. And what has been most interesting for our team monitoring this is that normally when the BBC of all networks and issues on black Chinese racism in particular of the past couple of years come up, there has been a passionate backlash from Chinese social media, both from Chinese online trolls and their Western defenders. And this time, nothing, nothing at all. It's really quite surprising. Yeah, it's it's really it's really interesting that there's been this muted response. It'll be interesting to see whether it builds over time. Um, but yeah, you know, kind of the thing is, you know, like you, you know, it's it's very interesting to contrast it with 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 you know the like the, the ambassadors kind of rolling out of of incidents like the the killing of George Floyd, for example. You know, so so kind of so so fluently in 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 relation to the United States. You know, while this is also this kind of roaring trade is happening in China, it's just, you know, this there's. 
the the thing is, you know, kind of it's 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 very easy to to point out racism in other societies. It's much harder to point it out in one's own society, um, and that's true for all societies at the same time. You know, kind of this is you know I'm I'm South African, but I know this, <laughs> you know, maybe more than more starkly than many other people, just simply because of the history of South Africa, and you know this. It just it just makes you realize that that kind of anti-black racism is just this enormous problem that affects the entire world, you know, and that warps people's thinking around the entire world. And it's 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 really important to address it. Well, that's a good place to end our conversation. It's been a heavy hour, but I appreciate both of you joining us to kind of give this really nuanced perspective of both Ambassador Huang's take and then also on this very contentious issue of this documentary the links for the documentary i'll put in the show notes if you have not seen it it is absolutely essential viewing also we will have it on our twitter page at china gs project uh you it's everywhere just look for a racism for sale and it will come up everywhere so that'll do it for this edition of the show cobus and i will be back again next week just a heads up we are in the process of launching our new china global south podcast that will start Ooh, this week, next week, the week after, we're not quite sure. We're just kind of trying to figure it all out. But expect to see uh, some shows from different parts of the world coming into this feed on the China Africa feed. But also we'll have a separate feed if you just want to get the Global South. That will be up. We'll put links to that. I'll also put links to all of Giro's sites and projects. And if you speak French, he is just about to launch a twice-weekly newsletter. It's going to be free of charge for a trial period right now. We're going to put a sign-up for you to in the show notes, and so you can register to get this trial newsletter for a couple of months just to see all the great work that Giro is doing at Projet Afrique Sheen. We'd love for you to follow his podcast, his Twitter feed, and then, of course, also our colleague Nesrin Kamal in uh, doing what the great work she's doing on our Arabic site as well. So that'll do it for the show. We'll be back again next week with another episode. Until then, for Jeronima and Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Tag us on Twitter at ChinaGS Project and visit us at ChinaGlobalSouth.com. If you speak French, check out our full coverage at projetafriquechine.com and Afriquechine on Twitter. That's Afrique with a K. And you'll also find links to our sites and social media channels in Arabic. Thank you.